Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And our Heavenly Father, may it be that as we read your word now, that it would have a profound impact on us, that we may not be quite the same as we were before we turned to your word, that your spirit would do his remarkable work of uh, helping us to understand your word, but more than that, taking it deep into our hearts that our lives may be completely changed and transformed by it. Uh, And may it be that as a result, we are more like the Lord Jesus, living for him and becoming like him for your praise and glory. Amen. Amen. Please do sit. Well, Peter, thank you for reading. Uh, You might like to turn back uh, in your Bibles to that reading that Peter read for us just a moment that we read along with, page 670 in the Church Bibles. And if you are here for the first time or here for the first time for a while, uh, this is part of our series, as you will have picked up through the prayers and various other ways of us looking through the book of Ecclesiastes. I think this is week four um, as we uh, head on through. I I wish I had more time. Every week, I wish I had more time, more time to get my work done, more time to spend on my sermon, more time to spend with my children, more time to play tennis, more time to read, more time with my wife, more time to pray, more time to exercise, more time with people, more time to play tennis, more time to relax, more time in bed, more time to go to the theatre or to go running or to play board games and to do the gardening. I wish I had more time to play tennis. I just wish I had more time. It's the sort of thing we all say from time to time. I'm sorry, but I haven't got the time. My diary's full. I'd love to stay and chat, but I must dash. Oh, is that the time already? My, how time flies. If only I had more time. Do you find yourself longing for those childhood days when the summer holidays seem to go on forever? My children sometimes say to me, I'm bored, Daddy. And I say to them, I'd love to have that problem, which really winds them up. We're constrained by time. Time dictates what we can and can't do. Of course, it's partly a problem of living in the West in the 21st century. The pace of life is crazy. Go to Africa or the Caribbean and watch the locals with their sort of laid-back approach to life saunter around as if they had all the time in the world And, of course, it's the Africans who love telling the Europeans, you have the watches, but we have the time. The the sheer pace of life in the West doesn't help. But but this problem of time isn't a new problem. It's not a a 21st century problem, not a a Western civilization problem. It's a problem of life. It's a problem that was a problem 3,000 years ago in the Middle East. For here, in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, it's a problem. The teacher, the... Now, the author of this book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, as he calls himself, knew all about the tyranny of time. So what's going on in the opening eight verses of chapter three. These words are not the beautiful poetry of a talented writer telling us to choose our moments. There's a time you could do this, time to do that. Rather, these verses show us how we're, we're locked into time. These verses should leave us really frustrated how time and circumstances dictate so much of our lives. Indeed, as we understand these verses, we're we're brought to the chilling realisation that we're not as free as we like to think we are. Time confines us like a hamster in a cage. The first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 demonstrate how we are captives of time. 
how time controls us rather than we it. Look how these verses begin. Verse 1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. You see, a birth and death, the beginning and end of life, activities that we have very little say over. I didn't choose when to be born, and apart from the obvious exceptions, most of us don't decide when to die. (laughs) Last summer, the reality of verse 2 hit me like a ton of bricks. As I sat in a little room with my mum in her her very last days of life, I sat there with my brother and and sister-in-law, Sophia. Sophia at the time was heavily pregnant. The contrast of a new life about to begin and a life ending wasn't lost on us. And neither was the truth of this verse. That we don't decide when we're born or when we die. See, as my mum got to the point where Her breathing was so laboured that every breath was a struggle. We longed for, indeed, we prayed for her to die. We didn't want to see her suffer any longer. And as we sat there through what seemed those, well, they were long days, but they weren't uh, weren't as many days as as I seemed to think at the time, but as we sat through those long days, David and Sophia were hoping that the baby wouldn't come. David wanted to be there with our mum, And he knew that if Sophia went into labor, he'd have to be with her. He'd be torn to know where to be. But here's the point that I'm trying to get to here. We couldn't dictate when the baby was born or when our mum would die. The baby would come when the baby would come. Mum would die when mum would die. We had no choice over it. That's verse 2. There's a time to be born and a time to die. We don't decide those things. And so that first line in verse 2 sets the tone for all eight verses and makes it clear that this is a chapter not of a series of wise sayings reminding us to act, react appropriately in different times and in varying circumstances. No, here the teacher is presenting us with the stark reality. We are caught in time, whether we like it or not. We are not the masters of our lives. The events of life and the timing of events outside of our lives dictate to us how we live our lives, whether we like it or not. I see it's true of when our lives begin and end. And as we read on, we see it's true of so much of the everything that goes on between, even the, the everyday. So look at verse 2. Uh, there's a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. This, I think, is the farmer's world. There's a time to plant. And if he misses that time, he won't have any crops. He doesn't have any choice in it. He's got to get on with it. Time dictates when you plant. And there's a time to uproot, a time to harvest. Again, the window of opportunity to bring in the harvest is very small. That's why farmers work so hard when it's harvest time. Miss the time and crops are ruined. And verse 3, there's a time when the farmer takes the animal to the abattoir. See, a time to kill. A time to kill the very animal that he, earlier on in its life, had nursed it back to life when it was sickly. A time to kill and a time to heal. And verse 3, a time to tear down and a time to build. Things wear out through the passage of time. So, 
the dilapidated barn needs to be torn down and a new one needs to be built. It's not something the farmer wants to do. It's something he has to do because time has taken its toll. See, as we look at life for the farmer, we can see that the world of work and, and what we do is, what we do at work is driven by, by time, by deadlines. In my working week, there's all manner of things I'd like to do. Visit more people, read more books, consider things more carefully. But the clock is ticking. The deadlines are nearing. The routine is dictating. And I'm, I'm driven by so many external things every week. It's exactly the same with leisure time. We like to think that on our day off, we can, we can completely decide how to use our time. When I wake up on a Saturday morning, I often think to myself, today my time's my own. No, it isn't, says the teacher. Verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So you might decide to go out dancing on a Saturday night. Uh, You can be all ready to go, about to leave the house, dressed up to the nines, and just as you're about to walk out of the door, the telephone rings and it's bad news, very bad news. And in a second, in an instant, all your plans have changed. What you thought would be an evening of laughing and dancing has turned out to be a devastating moment of mourning and weeping. That's verse 4. And you see again, we don't decide when those times will be. Even our leisure time is constrained by the timing of circumstances beyond our control. The world of work, verses 2 and 3. What we do with our leisure time, verse 4. And even relationships are affected by time and circumstances, verse 5. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. See, one commentator suggests that the scattering of stones is a veiled metaphor for sex. Well, whether that's the case or not, the second half of verse 5 is surely there to make us think of best friends parting in bitter conflict. Or the once happily married couple separating with the words, I never thought it would come to this. A time to embrace, a time to refrain. You see, relationships can be ruined because of the limitations of time. He spent too much time at the office. And now he can't turn the clock back to erase all those mistakes. Almost everything we do, from the biggest, most important things in life, down to the most trivial, are dictated by time and circumstances that are out of our control. So, verse 6, the collector disperses his hoard. Well, a stamp collector, perhaps, a time to search and a time to give up. He's looking for his penny black. Given up on his stamp collecting, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Verse 7, there's a need to speak out in a way that tears down an argument, followed by the need to be silent so that a relationship can be mended. And in verse 8, there's a time when the peace-loving nation prepares for war. You see how the teacher is showing us that we're, we're imprisoned in time, driven by circumstances way beyond our control. Verse 1, there is a time for everything, but I don't decide it. Not me that's drawing up the timetable of my life. Now, we love to believe that we're free and independent, in control, the master of our own destiny. But in reality, so much of how my life pans out is dictated by time. It's about being in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And if we're trapped by a timetable that seems to be controlled by something outside of ourselves, well then, verse 9, what does the worker gain from his toil? What is the point of working so hard at school to get to university? When I live in a time that means that when I leave uni, there are no jobs because the world is gripped by the recession, the worst recession for 70 years. It's not my fault that it's just that time now that I live in. All that work and all I'm left with as a, as a student is a huge student loan hanging around my neck. Verse 9, what does the worker gain from his toil? A crippling debt? And what's the point of working so hard when someone else who was in my class at school, a lazy so-and-so, left school after GCSEs, messed around for a couple of years, just happened to be in the right place at the right time, got introduced to a successful entrepreneur, fell on his feet and became a millionaire by the time he was 22. He did nothing. I worked hard. So, verse 9, what does the worker gain from his toil? What's the point of working so hard when... Being in the right place at the right time is actually the thing that seems to matter. Do you see the point? At time, at times, time and timing appear to be the only thing that makes the difference. And so the teacher writes familiar, familiarly to us, verse 10, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. Do you feel the burden of time? Of course we do. We can't stop time. It, it takes its toll on us, on all of us, doesn't it? So in time, we all end up with a furniture problem, with our chests in our drawers. Thank you very much. <laughs> One person enjoyed it. It was worthwhile. You see, the passing of time means that gravity wins. Time waits for nobody. It has a curious hold over us. We can't beat it. We can't control it. My, how we wish we could sometimes. At the airport, when the plane is delayed, time seems to go so slowly. But only a few hours later, time seemed to be racing away as you were stuck in traffic, wondering if you'd get to the airport on time. Now you sit in the departure lounge, and every time you look at your watch, the hands barely seem to have moved. It's a strange thing, isn't it? It's exactly the same when you're in love. How the time drags as you long for the time to go quickly so that you can be together again. And the moment you're together, the time flies by. And isn't the passing of time the grim reality behind many a midlife crisis? Your life slipping away, <laughs> slipping away, and you can do nothing about it. When it comes to us and time's time, we're like sprats before a super tanker. There's no way we'll stop it. We are slaves to time, and the truth of it can be so overwhelming that sometimes life seems like nothing more than doing time. See, face up to, the, to time as the teacher does. Face up to how time marches relentlessly on, how we're trapped in it, how it dictates to us what we have to do. Face the fact that time always wins, how we never beat the clock or outlast time. And we have to conclude with the teacher, verse 10, that being trapped in time is a heavy burden. It is a heavy burden, and yet, as we saw last week, this burden, while it seems harsh, does in fact flow out of God's great kindness towards us. Do you remember that last week? Do you remember the words of Derek Tidball last week? He said this, the irritation, the irritation and wearisomeness of life is God's strategy to remind us of our need of him. 
Well, now, looking at chapter 3, we might say the frustration of being locked in time is God's strategy to remind us that we are eternal, made for something beyond time, which is something we all know deep down, because look at verse 11. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Do you see the contrast? We've been thinking all the time about time, and then he drops it in. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. I remember vividly when I was just 13 or 14 uh, grappling with eternity. I remember talking with a friend. There must be something after death, I said. I can't imagine just not existing anymore. Ever thought that? Here's why I had those thoughts and why anybody ever has those thoughts. Verse 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And since those teenage musings, I've met it in so many people, not least of all when I take a funeral. On a good number of occasions, I've met people say to me of their loved ones, well, he wasn't religious, he tried his best. He's in a better place now, though, isn't he, Vicar? See, those who refuse to engage with eternal matters throughout their lives, when they come face to face with death, they believe in something eternal. Because, verse 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. This can't just be it, can it? When the rubber hits the road, we can't live with the thought that we are finite creatures That indeed is what the teacher says in uh, verses 18 to 20. You see, he says, verse 18, I also thought as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the others. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust to dust all return. See, God is testing us. If you want to live as if uh, God didn't didn't exist, then you're just going to conclude we're just like the animals. When we die, we die. When celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin, David Attenborough produced a series called Charles Darwin in the Tree of Life. And Attenborough's conclusion was that we're just like the most highly developed of all the animals. Highly intelligent beings we are, but at the end of the day, just animals... That's all we are. So when you die, you die. Now, you may have met people who believe that. You, you may be someone who believes that. But let me ask you if you believe that when you come face to face with death, with your own death, with the death of a loved one. Go to a humanist funeral sometime. In, in my job as a, as a clergyman, Uh, When I take a funeral at a crematorium, I can hear in uh, the funeral that is before me so I know whereabouts they are in the proceedings. So I'm in the vestry and you can hear the other funeral sort of being piped through. And it was some years ago that I first heard a a, a humanist funeral and it was so bleak. They've got nothing to say. They've got no hope. The utter hopelessness of humanism Ask yourself if you really believe that when, that that we're just like the animals, that when you die, you die. Ask yourself if you really believe that when it's your loved one who's just died. Do you see the point in verse 18? In death, God tests us. He tests us to see if we really are ready to believe that we're no different from the animals. 
And deep down we know that's not true because, verse 11, God has set eternity in our hearts. We know deep down that we're made for something more than this. We know that death is not right, that there must be something more. We know that we're made for eternity and that's why the marching of time bothers us so much. It's flying by. Is this all I've got? Derek Kidner magnificently describes what is going on here. He says this. We are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognise something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to end. You see, that is exactly what's happening in verse 11. As we read, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And we do see the beauty of the world we're living in, of the the relationships we form, of the endless variety of the experiences that we can have. Life is good. Life is beautiful. Yet, verse 11, we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, trapped in time, we can't make sense of the bigger eternal picture. To use uh, Derek Kidner's idea, we can't stand back enough to see what's going on. And because we can't see the bigger picture, even when we get glimpses of the beauty of, of all that we're involved in, the detail doesn't make sense to us because we're trapped in time. Despite the tyranny of time, there are brilliant moments in life, beautiful moments in life, but without the ability to lift ourselves right outside the situation, we can't grasp the point of it all. That's verse 11. And so locked in time, the teacher says, verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That's it. Trapped in time, unable to make sense of the eternal, we've just got to make the most of it now. You see, it doesn't have to be like that. So he says, verse 13, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. The teacher says, no, it doesn't need to be like verse 12, just making the most of it. The teacher says we can find satisfaction in time when we understand the gift of God. We can know the point of it all when we see the eternal perspective that God wants to give us. 4 verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. See, God isn't locked in time. And all that God does endures forever, for eternity. And he does what he does so that we would revere him, turn to him, find eternity in him. Again, it's the sort of thing we saw last week. God has put eternity in our hearts so that we are restless until we've turned to him. Maybe that's why you've come today. It's one of the big reasons that that I began to think seriously about Jesus Christ. I I felt restless deep down. I was doing okay in life. But I kept thinking, is this it? I wasn't happy that, that, that... that there wasn't something more. I needed to come to know what Augustine knew as he prayed these words, you, Lord, have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. See, when we turn to him, we can find satisfaction in all our toil. 
just as we read in verse 13. In Christ, we can know that that, that the timetable has been drawn up by a loving Heavenly Father. It's not all arbitrary. In Christ, we can make sense of what was previously senseless, pointless, meaningless, vapour. We can know the one who astonishingly works all things together for good for those who love him. When we know the God of eternity, it makes sense of everything because, verse 15, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. You see, verse 15 assures us that with God, everything is foreknown and nothing overlooked. We may not be able to see it now, but in Christ there will be a day when we'll be able to see that there was a point to every moment in time, every action, everything that is done, because God takes everything and makes it work for his purposes, for the glory of his name and for the good of his people, for you and me. But under the sun, life viewed as if this is all there is, under the sun we can have no such assurance. Worse indeed, verse 16, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of justice, wickedness was there. Do you see what he's saying at this point? He's saying not only can we not make sense of life under the sun, it seems that wickedness reigns under the sun. And it bothers us that so many people seem to get away with murder that corruption pays, that inequality remains, and that the poor are exploited. Wickedness reigns. We don't want to live with injustice and wickedness, but under the sun, wickedness reigns. So what a huge relief to know verse 17. I, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. There will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. As we draw to a close, you see, we feel locked in time, frustrated that we run out of time to put wrongs right. But God assures us that there will be a time when everything done in time will be brought before his judgment seat. He says that at the end of verse 15. The past will be called to account. And here's a key thing to hang on to. That gives everything meaning. You see... Negatively, this is the point, if there is no judgment, if there's no assessment of our actions, then there is no meaning in what we do. It would be like revising for and sitting an exam and never knowing if you passed or failed, never knowing whether you passed or failed. The hard work, the revision and the exam itself then becomes pointless. Why did you bother doing it? That's how life is under the sun, pointless if there's no final judgment. There's no one who's going to say whether what we did was valuable or not. It's all a waste of time otherwise. But here he says that's not how it is. God has set a time when the world will be judged. The date is in the diary, and we read about that date in Acts chapter 17. When Paul is preaching, he says this, God has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof to all this, to all men, by raising Jesus from the dead. We can look to the one who came from beyond the sun, and we can be sure of a judgment day when all wickedness is dealt with, a day when God will call the past to account, and on that day, make sense of everything that ever happened. And the one who came from beyond the sun has told us how we can be ready for that day. Remember, as Jesus began his public ministry, he said this, The time has come. 
The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Yes, we've blown it. We haven't used our time as we should. But we can repent and believe and face the judgment day with confidence because, as we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we read in 2 Corinthians these words, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Do you want to know what to do with your time? So that it's not a waste of time? Live your life for Jesus Christ. Basking in his favour. Now is the day of, of, of God's favour. Enjoying your time now, knowing that there is a greater time to come. For Jesus said these words in the book of Revelation. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. On our own, the tyranny of time frustrates us. On our own, trapped in time, we just can't fathom what life is about. But God does know the end from the beginning. And here's the thing, he's led us in on it. And so this chapter ends with two questions that the the Christian does know the answer to. The first question comes in verse 21. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Who knows? Do you know the answer to that? Yes, we do know the answer to that. Because Jesus has told us the answer to that. We are different to the animals. We are made for eternity. And in Christ, we can be guaranteed of life beyond the grave. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die, says Jesus. So we do know the answer to the question in verse 21. And Christians, we know the answer to the question that comes in verse 22 as well. See what he says at the end of verse 22. Who can bring man to see what will happen after him? Answer, Jesus Christ can. And he has. There is something very wonderful to come for those who are in Christ. Something very wonderful to come after us. Two questions, verse 21 and 22, that the Christian does know the answer to. But here's the real question. Are we living as if we know the answer? Or are we living trapped in time? A pointless, meaningless Life of vapour. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for once again exposing our pointless, meaningless life of vapour when we live life without you involved. We thank you for showing us just how bleak life is. We thank you for showing us why we're not satisfied with, with time, why time seems to be such an enemy to us most of the time. We thank you that you wonderfully have set eternity in our hearts 
so that we're not happy with just 60 or 70 years because we weren't made for 60 or 70 years. We thank you that gloriously you've put a burden on us, which means that we can't rest easy with such a short time of life. And we thank you that in your kindness you've gone beyond the burden to show us the great gift of the Lord Jesus, the one who existed for all eternity from the beginning and always will, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and end. We pray that increasingly he would be everything to us and in him we would find freedom from the tyranny of time as we look forward to eternity with him. Eternity with you, free from all the constraints that we have to put up with now, enjoying you forever. And so we pray that would be the very heart and focus of everything we are and every day that we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.